Good morning. Take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke 15, while you're turning there, um, just a couple of things here in the beginning. Appreciate your prayers for our family this week, particularly for our youngest son, Elias. He has epilepsy, if you didn't know that. He's had some seizures um, this week, and we're still kind of dealing with that. And so, again, just appreciate your prayers. And also want to mention to you, pray for... Uh, Cindy Driggs, the Driggs family, and for the Harper family in the passing of John Harper. John passed away this morning around 5.30 a.m., and so we want to remember their family in our prayers as well. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we go into the message today. Father, we come to you this morning knowing that our access to you is through the finished work of your Son. We thank you that he came from heaven and that he has not only paid the penalty for sin, but he has made a new and living way that we may be able to boldly walk into your presence and cry out to you as our heavenly father. And we know that that is only for his atoning blood. And from you we receive grace and mercy. And we acknowledge this morning that we are unworthy of that. We come before you as weak and we come before you as needy and constant need for your all-sufficient grace. And so this morning we lift up the Harper family, the Driggs family. We pray for your comfort that you are, because you are the God of all comfort, and the greatest comfort is in the blessed hope that we have through our Savior who has risen from the dead. We thank you for John's testimony of faith in Christ. We thank you that uh, only because of Christ can we have any guarantee or assurance of salvation. So on one hand, we grieve and we sorrow, but we don't do that without hope because our hope is in Christ and the gospel. And so we thank you for that and pray that you would just wrap their family in that hope and in your kind and tender uh, mercy and peace. We pray now that you will turn our eyes and our attention to the word of your word, the living word. We pray that you will speak through this message and that, God, that the word will be rightly divided, and that, Holy Spirit, you will do the work in each of our hearts so that we will not only see ourselves for who we are um, in, in our sin, but we will also see the great hope that we have in Christ um, and through the gospel. And so we pray above all that Jesus is lifted up, that the gospel is proclaimed, and again, that you will uh, sanctify us through your word. We um, ask for your power to be displayed, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that you'd remove all distraction, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We're going to go to Luke 15. This morning, the title of the message is The Two Lost Sons. The Two Lost Sons. Stand with me in the reading of God's Word, and we're going to begin reading in verse 11. And here's what Scripture says. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But 
When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And, said, and, and, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your profit property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, the parable in front of us this morning has been called the greatest short story ever told. That's fair, because it is presented by the greatest storyteller of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ. Of the parables that are in the New Testament that Jesus taught and that we've been studying, it is probably the most famous and the most familiar. It is truly a remarkable parable that one author says is a gospel within the gospel. No other parable truly serves as more, a more beautiful picture of salvation than this one. It is the third of three parables in Luke chapter 15 about the joy of finding what is lost. Remember? a sheep rescued, a coin recovered, and now a son, a son, a rebellious son who returns home and is joyfully restored by the very father he despised and dishonored. And that is what makes the parable really different. It shows the other side of salvation's coin a sinner's repentance and God's infinite love and God's eagerness to forgive. We often emphasize God's sovereign pursuit of a sinner and His sovereignty in salvation. But the other side of that coin is truly a sinner's repentance and God's infinite love and eagerness to forgive. 
But as you look at this parable, it's interesting because the parable is really not about the prodigal son, which has been the primary focus for interpretation. That's why in the Bible, the heading that are not inspired says the parable of the prodigal son, because that is generally the focus. And to be just straight with you here, it will be what we primarily focus on this morning. It is, it is what we'll primarily focus on this morning because what we're going to do is we're going to, this is the first time I really ever have done this, but we're going to split this sermon into a couple of pieces. And so today we're going to look specifically here at the part of the prodigal son. But again, that receives its primary, but it's really not the, the, the primary point of this particular parable. It is actually the parable of two lost sons. Because there's not just one son. In fact, look at the verse, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. So, so immediately we're drawn attention not to a prodigal son, but we're drawn to this man who has two sons. And therefore, two sons play a very critical role in this particular parable. And with that said, central to the parable are not the prodigal son or the other son. Central to the parable is the father. And in each part of the story, the father will, be will play a very specific role. You can go through it, and you can underline every time you come across a reference to the father in the story. And you know, you know why that is the case? Because there is no hope for either of these sons without the father. There's no hope without the father. That is important because central to salvation is God, not us. Central to our salvation is God, not us. And, and, and here's the reality. No matter how unique your testimony of salvation might be or my testimony of salvation might be, could we not all agree that there is no salvation had there not been God who provided the means of salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And there would be no way for us to be reconciled or to be restored or to be redeemed had it not been for the Father who sent the Son and the Son who came from the Father to go to the cross and die and to be buried and to be raised. That's why God is central to our salvation. And that's really why the, the parable here, central to the parable, is the Father. But the parable is told as rebuke to the Pharisees. And the reason this parable is told is the same reason for the other two about the lost sheep and the lost coin. The Pharisees are angry because Jesus spends time with tax collectors and sinners, the prodigals of fallen humanity. And nothing could be more shocking to the self-righteous religious leaders than the notion that God would welcome and forgive sinners who dishonor and disobey Him. And that's why this parable is so full of grace and so full of hope that it is a beautiful picture of salvation, but it is also, it is also full of condemnation. Because in the end, the repentant sinner will be saved and the morally religious will perish unless the morally religious repent as well. And so what follows then is this key kingdom truth. 
And here's the banner that we put over this particular parable, which connects even back to the other two parables in this text. Like a patient father, God receives repentant sinners with joy. And we must share in that joy. You know, I I would even go further to say that it is proper for us to say that God eagerly waits for sinners and receives them with joy. Because that's the picture here. And so to unpack this entirely, we will divide the parable into three sections. The rebellion of the younger son, the reception of the waiting father, and the resentment of of the elder brother but we're only going to be able to get through one of those points the reason i said that to you is because i don't want you to get to the end of the sermon and think okay well that's the conclusion no it's just the bookmark and then we'll pick it back up next week so this week let's look at this first thing the rebellion of the younger son look at verse 11 and or verse 12. notice the rebellion of the younger son Notice first his shocking request. Verse 12, And the younger of them said to his father, of these two sons, were presented the first, the younger. The younger comes and says to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So this younger son comes to this father and he demands him basically to give him his inheritance. To give him the portion of his inheritance. Now, this is shocking for a number of reasons. First reason it is shocking is because the younger son was not, in first, it was not the first in line to any part of this inheritance, right? He's the younger. He's not the firstborn. And, so it mu- and it also must be kept in mind that the word property is used. Wealth and money in the ancient world were attached to one's family estate, which was generally passed down. And so what this young man was demanding is not just an inheritance so he could have money, but he was asking his father to completely divide the family estate and to give him one-third of that estate, which is what he would have, given there were two sons, he would have received one-third of that estate, and the other son, the the firstborn, would have received two-thirds of the estate. But, but the other shocking thing, so, so it's just shocking, number one, that he would come and that he would ask this as the younger son. That takes audacity. I mean, that takes just a level of boldness. But then his father is still alive, and he's asking this question. Inheritance being divided only happened when a person was dead. And I don't care what commentator you read, every single one of them will say that the younger son's demand for the inheritance was his way of looking at his father and saying, you are dead to me. You are dead to me. Give me what is mine. And so you can see not only how dishonoring that is, but how disrespectful that is, and in doing so, how selfish it is. He shows that he does not really care about his father, but what he really cares about is his father's money. What he really cares about is what is coming to him through inheritance. And even worse, he makes the demand with the intent of destroying the wealth. I mean, what does he have, a great business pro, uh, uh, offer that he wants to go invest? No. He intends to take, this, take the wealth 
he intends to sell off the property, take the money, and then spend it on frivolous living. It is a deliberate act. Make no mistake about it. And it was not only deliberate, but it would have been, it would, it would permanently end his relationship with the Father. The audience would have understood this. Anybody listening to this story would have thought that the younger son was a fool and should be properly disowned. That's what they would have expected. They would expect this father to totally write him off, disown him. Now, how does the father respond initially? Well, look at verse 12 again. It says, he divided his property between the two. He divides it and he allows his life. And that's the word for property, life. He, in other words, allows his life, his whole generational inheritance, to be torn apart. It is to, it, the, 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 the original language is intended to demonstrate to us how absolutely huge this demand of the younger son is and how the father allows this. And keep that in mind. He sovereignly allows it. He lets him have his demand. Now, there's a reason for that. But I think what you need to really grasp here is simply this. I want you to get this. He, this, this younger son, has dishonored his father. Keep that in your mind. And then notice what happens next. What happens next in this shocking request is his reckless living. Now look at verse 13. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property. And what does it say? In reckless living. That's what the word prodigal means, is reckless. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So then he went and he hired out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So notice where this part in this reckless living, what happens? Excited about his new found freedom and fun, the younger son sets out for the far country. He's heading out of Israel. He's probably heading over to a neighboring pagan land so that he can get away from all that he has ever known. Tim Keller writes or observes that for this younger son, this was his path to self-discovery. And to get there, he had to sever all that held him back. Maybe this younger son watched a lot of Disney movies. I mean, he had to, right? Follow your heart. You know that mean old dad Moana who doesn't want you to go out into the ocean. You just got to be set. You got you to tell him he doesn't know what he's talking about. Same old stupid Disney story told one same, same line, same thing fed, fed to us in a hundred different ways. Little, I don't care, Little Mermaid, sorry, Rabbit Trail, Frozen, of course, you gotta let, just let it go, guys. Just let it go. Let those parents go. Let all the rules go. Just get rid of it all. This young man was going to follow his heart. He is the master of his own fate. And in him is the, is the philosophy of the true libertarian. Freedom. Freedom to do whatever I want. To define my own right and wrong and to set my course. And so this reckless living really unfolds in three ways. His, rec his reckless living, one, is wayward. It's wayward. 
It's way we're just like everything you see. Just grid this over the next Disney movie you watch, okay? He wants no responsibility for anyone or anything. That's the first thing. And he wants no accountability to anyone. His foolishness, really, when you dig into this, it represents the very center of our own culture, a personal autonomy in which we live. Sinners want to live away from God and apart from others in self-indulgence and rebellion and want everyone to affirm it. His senseless living, his reckless living is completely wayward. But the other thing you would say about his reckless living is that it is wasteful. It is wasteful. Notice the text. He squanders the fortune of his father. He spent all of it. It says the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And so his, it, it's wasteful. And, and, and that would include spending every, all his inheritance on partying and prostitutes. Isn't that what the, young, the older brother accuses him of? You took, this, you, took the, you took your portion of the inheritance, you went, and you spent it on prostitutes. You fed your lustful desires. You took what you took your inheritance and for, for nothing more than self-gratification. And he took no thought of the future. And he lived life to the fullest. But really? Is it really to the fullest? Because when you get to verse, when you get to verse 14, he spent everything. He actually lived life to the emptiest. To the emptiest. Verse 14 tells us he spent it all. It was all gone. And when it's all gone, he finds himself completely destitute. And right in his moment of destitution, guess what? Matters get worse. A disaster strikes. A disaster strikes. Famine shows up. And so his reckless living is not only wayward in that he doesn't want to have any responsibility. He wants no accountability to anyone. No, no parents, no nothing. He wants to be completely free of it. It is completely wasteful, wasted on sin, wasted on lust, wasted on his fleshly desires. And then the other thing about his reckless living is it's woeful. The disaster, again, is a famine that arose in the land. Now, common to that time, famines were dreadful and deadly. But when you come to this verse, I want you to notice and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country. And notice what the text says. And he began to be in need. So what does he do? He doesn't go home yet, does he? He goes further down. He goes deeper in. He continues his self-discovery journey. And so he then, instead of turning home, he goes and he hires himself out to one of the citizens of this pagan country who then sends him into the fields to feed pigs. Do you see the woefulness of his situation? Not ready to admit his sin, he alienates himself even more from his nation, from his community, and from his family. He hires himself to another citizen of this pagan land and what does he get to do? He gets to herd and feed, not sheep, pigs. And do you know why Jesus uses this as the next step in his spiraling down? Because pigs would have, were considered the most unclean animal. 
and to, to eat their food. And, and, and even says that he, not only is he feeding pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. This guy is so far gone from everything in his past that he's willing to work with animals that have been forbidden by God to even be handled, and he's even willing to eat their food. He has hit the bottom by the time you get to verse 16. To eat their food, again, would have been the lowest you could go. And so here he is at the point of eating pig slop. He has no friends. He has no family. He has no food. And clearly, at this point, he has no future. And you see that because notice the last phrase of verse 16. No one gave him anything. Jesus' point is to paint the picture of this man's desperation. Not so that we can see him, but we can see what happens next and to whom he returns. But I think it's important to pause here for just a second. And to allow us to be reminded that even in the central purpose of this parable, there are so many lessons, isn't there? The pleasure of sin lasted long enough for the boy to go from a feast to a famine. He wasted his birthright. He destroyed his life. And he experienced the hard way that the pleasure of sin only lasts for a season. I can remember a song when I grew up and Southern Gospel music was very popular. Right? Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. And, and, and it goes on to describe the lasting effects of sin. But, but, but isn't it true? Sin never gives. It always takes. Would you not agree? Sin always takes. But it promises it'll give you the world, but it takes everything from you. It will take your time. It will take your focus. It will take your, your family. It will take everything. It never liberates. It only enslaves. And in the end, the wages of sin is not just destitution. In the end, sin is the, the, in the end, the wages of sin is not just disaster. Paul said it right, for the wages of sin is what? It is death. J.C. Ryle, the pastor of the 19th century, said this: sin is a hard master. What, a, what an important observation. And so as you come here to the, 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 the close of the second point about this reckless living, we, we've already seen the dishonor through the request that he asked his father, but, but in this reckless living, as you come to the end, what you see here is, is that the prodigal son is not a picture of the worst of sinners. He is a portrait of every sinner. He is a portrait of every sinner including you and including me and even if i want to throw up the garden and say oh well you know i mean i mean at least not that bad well you don't know my heart then you can't see in my mind then because the reality is we are all corrupt through and through i mean to the core 
And, and, and so th- this, this illustrates this. We have all dishonored God. We have all disobeyed His commands. In the, sa- in the same manner that this man dishonored and disregarded his father, even so we have dishonored God and we have disobeyed His commands and we have destroyed our lives in selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent ways. In fact, we would say, to build on what I said a moment ago, the greatest idolatry of our day, is it not self? Self. I don't care where you go. I don't care what field you're in. I'll guarantee that you will hear constant self, 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 self-care, self-help, self-focus, self-self. It's, it's, it's obsession with self. Western civilization teaches us to bow to the altar of self. You be you. But the reality is you in your natural state, me in my natural state, we are all reckless and we are all ruined and we are all enemies of God, children of wrath. In fact, when you think of the prodigal, think of this, Ephesians 2, it won't be on the screen, but you can turn there, but listen, I'll read it, Ephesians 2. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 12. This is what he's telling these new Christians that formed the church in Ephesus. He says this, chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time, that is prior to your salvation, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, that's not the first thing he's had to say about their pre-Christ situation. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's Paul, the the rescued legalist, the rescued Jew, saying that we all, me included, lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then you go to chapter 4, and you look at verse 17, and Paul says, he says, And this I say, testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their callous heart. And if we were to size up this younger son, we would put that right on him because it is also a reflection of us. This is a picture of humanity, every human being in their natural state. Again, not a picture of the worst of sinners, but of every sinner. So, as you come then to verse 17, the party is over. I mean, really, the party is over. And, and, but, but the question that we have to ask is, is that the end of the story for the first son? The prodigal one. Well, that's what the Pharisees were thinking. I mean, the Pharisees, they're thinking, man, this guy is done. This son needs to be taken out and just completely deserted and because he is so evil. But isn't it good news to know that that's not the end of the story? Aren't you glad for the word but in the New Testament? 
Kids, that's your line to remember in this sermon, okay? Because look at verse 17, but, but, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, who was rich in mercy. And so have your parents go home and do a whole study just on the word but in the New Testament and how transformative that word is in the life of the believer. Look at verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And so the last thing I want you to see about the rebellious son is, yes, I want you to keep in mind and before you his shocking request, his reckless living, but the most important thing to see is his sincere repentance. But when he came to himself, but when he came to himself, maybe another word that used is when he was awakened, when he was transformed, when he was changed, he repented. In other words, there's an indication that something happened within him because of all that had happened to him. It would be easy for us to conclude here that this young man just pulled himself up by his bootstraps. I mean, he went inside of his heart and he found that light that was there. And then he, in the very power of his self-determination, he got himself up out of that situation and he transformed his life. Is that really what happened? No, remember what we said in the introduction, we're never the, we are never the center of the story. Everything that this young man purposed in his repentance was because of divine providence. Who allowed his foolish living? Well, his father did. No, God allowed it. Who sent the famine that brought him to his greatest need? God is the one who sent the famine. Who was at work behind the scenes bringing about this point of repentance? It was God who brought him to his senses. And in that moment, he repented. So isn't it encouraging for you to know that at every point in your life, Christian, God has been at work. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, God is at work in this sense. He has brought you to this moment to hear of your need to repent of your sin and come to Him who will freely receive you and save you by His grace. And so His repentance includes three things that I think you have to clearly see. Notice He is convicted of His sin. Do you see it? He says, how many of my, uh, of my hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He is convicted of his sin. And he sees his condition by way of comparison. Notice again, my father's hired servants, they have more than enough bread but I perish here with hunger. Do you know what the word perish in the Greek is a polyane? And it's actually translated lost. Lost. I perish. Eight times in Luke 15, you will see the word lost or perish. In other words, what this young man says is, I am lost. I am perishing. I am guilty. He does not see himself as the victim of the story. He sees himself as the villain in the story or in the circumstance. Life has a way, or God has a way of taking life 
or using life to turn a mirror onto your own heart. Because as God turns the mirror on his heart, God enables him to reach the right conclusion. The right conclusion. What does he say? I perish. Hear me, you will never be saved. You will never come home to God. You will never have redemption and reconciliation until you first can say, I perish. I am lost. I cannot help myself. That's where repentance begins. But notice how his thought shifts. This is good. From the guilt of his sin to the goodness of his father. Do you see it? He says, but I perish. But, but, but he says, but, my, but they have, my father's hired servants have more than enough bread. Now do you see something subtle here? Go back to verse 12. He came to his father and he said, father. Did he say my father? No personal pronoun there. But when you get to verse 17, he says, how many of my Father's hired servants have more than enough bread. Look at verse 18. I will arise and I will go to my father. My father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And so notice there is a shift in his thoughts and an attitude. Because he sees here my father. His father is generous and good because his servants have more than enough bread. His conviction of sin leads to confidence in his father that somehow and in some way his father will receive him back if anything he knows his only hope is in his father and then notice the second thing about his repentance he makes confession of his sin he says i will go to my father and i will say i will arise and go to my father and i will say to him I have sinned against heaven and against you. In other words, his thought will become action. He will face him. Notice the change? He will now take responsibility for his actions and he will stand accountable. And here's his confession. I have sinned against heaven. Another way of saying, I have sinned against God. Remember David in Psalm 51 in his prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba? What did he say? He cries out to Yahweh and he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Had he really not sinned against anyone else? No, but the reality is, is that the real treachery and the real treason of David's sin and the real treachery of all of our sin is it is against God. It is against God. He's the one that I've dishonored and disobeyed. And then he says, I have sinned against you. What a change. I mean, what a transformation. This goes against our therapeutic culture. In other words, he didn't come, you know, say, you know, this, I'm not sure how this happened to me. <laughs> no, he says, I caused this. I'm the reason for this mess. I have no one but to blame but me. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't excuse. He doesn't say, well, you know, if I'd had better parents, right? I mean, if I just had a better dad, (laughs) I'd have never done this. So, so antithetical to what we see in our culture. If I just had better opportunities, you know, I wouldn't have made a mess of my life. No, he doesn't victimize himself. 
He takes full responsibility for his sin. He stands completely accountable to God and those against whom he sinned. That is repentant confession of sin. Hear me. There is no reconciliation to God unless we first admit our complete and total guilt. And for that matter, we will never have right relationships with one another until we own our fault, our wrong, our guilt. In any conversation that I have with people, you know the reality is, every time you sit and you're counseling, you're having conversations, it's usually generally he did, she did, they did. And then the question is, well, what about you? I mean, ingrained in us is this sense of blame shifting. But he doesn't do it. And what happens is, is that notice now, he goes, from, he goes from conviction in his soul about his standing before God and his unworthiness before God, and then he makes confession of his sin. He says, I have sinned against you, against heaven, and before you. And notice in verse 19, he really cries out or calls out for salvation. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. There's the, call for, there's the call for salvation. In other words, he knows that permanent damage has been done. He does not expect to be restored as a son, which makes the, the rest of this so incredibly wonderful. So he goes to his father and he's going to say, don't receive me as your son, just treat me as one of your hired servants. And in doing so, he is reaching out to the only one who can really change his situation and save him and restore him. Ladies and gentlemen, that is true repentance. True repentance is conviction of sin, but not just sorrow for the consequences of sin, but conviction over the reality that I have sinned against God. It is seeing myself in the condition I am apart from him. And it is... It is confessing that in such a way that we call out to him to save us. And so that leads us to this kingdom question. Do you see yourself as the prodigal? Do you see yourself as the prodigal? This is what John MacArthur writes. We are all prodigal sons and daughters. Every one of us is guilty of self-indulgence, dissipation, and unrestrained lust. We have been heedless to the consequences of sin and reckless in the pursuit of evil. Do you see yourself as the prodigal? But, but hear me. The point of this part of the story is more than you just seeing yourself as the prodigal because the deeper question is this. Have you been truly convicted of your sin? Not just, oh, well, you know, the consequences and my conditions in life are bad and I want out of it but if you truly confessed I am lost I am perishing I am unworthy God save me and in calling out you come to Christ because you're tired of your self-centered selfish sinful living that's the real question because today he invites you to come home to him and so, as, as, we, as we think about that, let's just simply draw this conclusion. And this is where we're going to bookmark. This is what he purposes to do, but in, verse, in the next verse, verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. So I want to end this sermon where we'll begin next week. The young man went home to his father. But notice while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Do you see that? He saw him. You know what that means? He was waiting for him. <laughs> he was waiting for him. Now we might ask, where's the elder brother? Well, he's a whole other story. He's a whole, and he deserves a lot of attention. But I want to end not with the prodigal, but I want to end the day with the father. The father who was waiting. Eagerly waiting the return of his son. And when he saw him, you know what he felt? He felt rage. He went and got the belt. That's what I got when I was a kid and I did something stupid. That's not what he did. He felt compassion. And he ran to meet him. The father was waiting. He felt compassion. That word compassion means pity, mercy, kindness, readiness to fully forgive and restore. That is not what the audience was expecting, especially the Pharisee. The Pharisee expected the father to go out, actually to not even go out, but to completely dismiss him. But the father waiting runs and embraces him, and I wonder what he said. The text doesn't tell us what he said. But I'm a father, aren't you? Some of you? Can't you imagine him saying to his son, I've been waiting for you. I love you. I've done everything necessary for you to come home. Wow. And I'm ready to restore you. And not only am I going to restore you, we're to celebrate in a way that you have never experienced in your reckless living. Because you were dead and now alive. You were lost, and now you're found. Hear me this morning. That is the heart of God to sinners. He is the waiting Father. And, and I think often in our churches, and rightfully so sometimes, because in our culture, we, we have an emphasis on the love of God at the dismissal of sin. And so we preach justification, right? We preach that God is the judge, and He must be satisfied, and He can only be satisfied by the atoning work of his son. And that is true. I mean, without justification. But, but we often just present God as a judge from whom we need to have a pardon rather than a father also who's ready to receive us as son. We have to be always careful that we just don't pigeonhole into one view, but we see the whole picture. God is a judge who will justify sinners. But he is a father who will receive them when they come home. And he has provided everything necessary. Everything necessary for your salvation. You may say, you don't know how bad I am. You don't know the sins I've committed. You don't know the wreck that I've created. It doesn't matter if you admit your sin and come to him. He has provided everything necessary for your salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that this parable is told shortly before Jesus will go to the cross? 
Jesus is telling this story to show that sinners can come home because he left his home in heaven to go to Calvary to die for our sins on the cross, to take the penalty and to make a way for you and me to not only go home to God, but to be joyfully received as sons and daughters of the King. When I think of that, I can't help but think of that hymn, softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. See on the portals. He's waiting and watching. Watching for you and for me. Because what is said of the Father is said of the Son. Oh, for the wonderful love He has promised. Promise for you and for me. Listen, though we have sinned, He has mercy and pardon. Pardon for you and for me. Come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner. O sinner. O prodigal. O self-righteous Pharisee. Come home. And you can be saved. The question for you this morning is will you come? He waits for you and he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is waiting for you to come home. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are not only the good and righteous judge but you are the gracious and loving Father. Thank you that you love us, that you pursue us, that you save us. But thank you that you welcome us and that you have joy over us. Fill our hearts with that joy. Fill us with the joy of heaven that you have done everything necessary for our salvation. And if there's someone here today who has never come home to you, may they come home today. May they be saved today. And may every believer rejoice in the greatness of this salvation. In Christ's name, amen.